night may be long and the dark may be deep, but the answers are there to be found. Whether it's the normal, the abnormal, or the paranormal, you're in the right place. Let's go beyond reality. Welcome to the show. Great to have you along on a Wednesday night. Looking forward to another fantastic conversation. Now, this one will not be about Batman and not be about superheroes. That was a lot of fun last night with uh, Arlen Schumer. I really enjoyed the conversation. I must have said that a hundred times, and that was the hundred first. So um, I hope you enjoyed it, too. We've got a lot of great feedback about the program. Anytime you talk about something where there's some nostalgia involved, there is uh, this propensity to be to leave the conversation with a smile. But either way, we're going to be talking about something very, very serious tonight, although very interesting. Mark Fiorentino is going to be our guest, and he'll be talking about his views on how the universe really works, particularly on his study and research of Einstein's unified field theory. We'll talk about how the applications of that theory can be used to do things like travel through space, renewable energy, and future technology. He'll also talk about the connection between uh, this theory and conspiracy theories like UFOs and alien technology and other controversial topics like near-death experiences, uh, all related to this uh, theory of super relativity. So it's going to be a very interesting discussion, and sometimes these conversations get a little bit above my ability to comprehend them, but that's why we have such great guests who can boil it down in a way that we can all understand it. So what we're going to do is we're going to uh, jump to break here, get our guest on the line. We'll begin this conversation. Mark Fiorentino is our guest tonight. And again, we're talking about how the universe really works on Beyond Reality. It's uh, We'll be right back. Don't go away. Please support the program. Go to patreon.com slash Johaw. That's J-O-H-A-W. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. I, I know if you're trying to watch the YouTube stream, YouTube's having an issue. That's the problem with YouTube. Once in a while, it goes to these little quirky nights. Um, we are, the stream is seemingly working perfectly well on the Twitch channel. And of course, the radio broadcasts will be fine as well. I would also like to mention that if you're a podcast listener, the podcast has been growing by leaps and bounds. We're downloaded about 10,000 times a day. And thank you so much. If you're one of those people who downloads the show in that fashion, we appreciate your support there as well. It's not the live program. It's obviously, a recorded version of the program, but uh, we appreciate it nonetheless. Thank you so much for doing that. And also, please share it. Share it on your social media. Let people know that this podcast, and we've been doing the podcast version of the show since the radio show began, what, four or five years ago now? I can't even keep track. The years go by, and that one year stuck there last year, 2020, just was a year that wasn't a year. It's just so, so bizarre. And maybe we'll get some answers about that as well during tonight's discussion with Mark Fiorentino. Uh, Mark is an author. He's uh, share. He will be sharing his views on how the universe really works tonight based on his study and his research of Einstein's unified field theory. Mark, welcome to Beyond Reality. It's great to have you here tonight. Thank you for having me on the show. I have to uh, start out by asking you about this beer you were mentioning in our chat room because I'm always interested in a good beer and this is a french beer that you were talking about nothing to do with our conversation tonight but i'm curious what's this beer about 
Yeah, well, I first had it at Epcot, and uh, it won my uh, Best Beer Ever Award. Oh, wow. <laughs> uh, which is something I give to any food that I really, really <laughs> like. And um, I've been drinking it ever since. I managed to find it in the ABC liquor stores down here in Florida. And is it and, is the beer called 1664, or is that the brewery of the beer? Yeah, it's called 1664. Interesting. It's got a kind of a German name for the... I, it must be near the German border or something. Yeah. But, so there's a German connection to this French beer. Interesting. It's, I think that's the year it started. The company started. That makes sense. That makes sense. Uh, I'm going to have to search this one out because I'm always up for uh, tasting something new. And um, I've gotten kind of bored with the, the, uh, the constant one-up hopsmanship of uh, some of these craft brews where they just keep loading more hops in these beers. And at a point, I just can't take any more hops. But, uh, <laughs> you know, you know what I'm talking about. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, um, let's talk about Einstein a bit. But before we get into the details of really what we're going to be discussing here tonight, uh, you know, most of us go through school. We hear little bits and pieces about Einstein's work. You know, we we learn to respect a lot of what he's done. Some of his ideas have been um, um, called into question in recent years, but others have been started to been uh, demonstrated as being far ahead of their time. When did Einstein's work become of interest to you? Uh, at about the age of 10, uh, I was going to uh, a catechism class for the church, I was Catholic, and they wanted uh, us in the class to find a saint born on their birthday. So at that time, in 1965, uh, there was no Internet, so right. all you had basically was the library, your parents, um, friends, and family, and so forth. Uh, but I, I remember walking in over into the kitchen and looking at the calendar, and I saw that Albert Einstein was born on my birthday, and I really didn't know who he was. So I went to the Encyclopedia Britannica and looked him up. And I started reading about him. Uh, I just loved it. I, I loved his story. I loved. Uh, I, I read the, the unified field theory that was also located within the uh, Encyclopedia Britannica. And when I read that, I thought this is the best idea I have ever heard. And uh, ever since that time, everything I, you know, I had a great interest in science because of that. And ever since that time, everything I would read about UFOs or any TV shows or science fiction or documentaries, I would just say, "This is um, does this have anything to do with the unified field theory?" I tried to piece it together, looking for patterns. So it, it uh, had a great influence on me. That, that one event in my uh, past. What do you think it was about Einstein's story, apart from his his ideas, but his story that uh, connected with you? Uh, it's 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 hard to say, really. He's just, I guess, he his ability to use his imagination and and doing the mind experiments that had I had great interest in that, and uh, I began to practice that myself at. I would wake up a lot at night, and usually between the times of 3 to 5 in the morning, and I would try and do mind experiments like he would do, and I would read these things, and I realized that uh, 
he was modeling reality using his imagination and intuition, and that was guiding his mathematics. And I've always thought that was the best way to uh, work things out in physics. So I guess that part really is uh, a part that I, I really could coincide with or, or agree with or uh, it just seemed to make real good sense to me the way he approached physics and philosophy because he was a philosopher as well Einstein um, I mean I always heard this anecdote and I don't know how true this is but it's I think it still illustrates something pretty interesting uh, you know most people use 10% of their brain and Einstein used like 20% something like something very strange about that but do you think there was something um, I don't know how to put it. I don't want to say divinely inspired uh, that that offered Einstein or offered the the world Einstein. But was there something? Were there forces at play? Because he seemed like be the the right man at the right time to come up with some very important ideas that have helped shape our future. I I I, I would I really agree with that idea, and I am certain due to all the research I've done with NDEs and learning about how we all come down here, that that goal or his achievements, Mm -hmm. that was part of his life task, his life plan. We all have that. So in that sense, we're all the same. But he had a very specific, obscure type, you know, a strange, you know, type of life path. And yeah, I believe it was divine. And and in my next book, which I've just decided I'm going to write today, I'm going to approach that question and that subject uh, from the spiritual side, uh, which I've done a lot of research on. If you want to know how things work in this universe, it's the best idea to go to the source. And I'm sure... Uh, Einstein did that. I know that's what I've done. I've uh, used many different approaches to get information to piece together the puzzle. And, uh, yeah, I am absolutely sure that he had divine inspiration. Mark, I have to chuckle a little bit. You mentioned, um, you know, when you were starting your interest in Einstein's work and you were starting to learn about it, you had libraries and you had the Encyclopedia Britannica. I basically had the same thing. Mine was the World Book or whatever that series of uh, yeah. you know encyclopedias was. And it's amazing how often we went to those books as kids to try to figure out what the heck was going on in the world around us. I can't. I mean, I now now with the internet being you know such an integral part of our lives and, and the things we do every day, it's hard to remember those days. But it really made you invest your time, your energy, and your brain into some of these uh, these pursuits. Yeah, it's it's. Uh, I am very nostalgic uh, when it comes to the past, and there's times I wish I could go back and you know and live it all over again. Um, there's just the magic there, and uh, although I must say that this is a very important point to make, I must say that I couldn't have done what I've done in this book. I couldn't have achieved what I have achieved without the internet. Yeah. Uh, this is the most powerful research tool that has ever existed. And if Einstein would have had it, he would have solved the unified field theory problem uh, when he was alive. Uh, 
he was just born a little too early, 50 years too early, and he didn't know about the quarks. And had he known about them, I think he would have wrapped this whole thing up back in the 50s. But that's the way it is. (laughs) (laughs) Let's talk about the uh, unified field theory. Uh, you know, a lot of people, particularly people who listen to this program, when we talk about quantum physics, we talk about all these very cutting-edge ideas. Um, unified field theory will come up in those conversations, obviously. But not everybody understands what it is. How can you uh, explain it to us, describe it to us, in a way that we can all understand it? Oh, well, it's actually very simple and straightforward. Uh, I can do it in one sentence. Electromagnetism and gravity emerge as aspects of a single fundamental field. That's it. So so we were already two-thirds of the way there when James Clerk Maxwell uh, developed the theory of electromagnetism. All that was left to do was to combine gravity. And so they're saying that they're aspects of a single fundamental field. The first thing... Uh, people need to know, what fundamental field are you talking about? In that time, when they were talking about it in the, early, in the late 1800s, early 1900s, that fundamental field was known as the ether. And they were all leaning toward that for, for actually a couple centuries or more. And it all built up to that point in 1905, and then there was a break away from the ether. But the, the unified field theory was just about recognizing the main forces of nature. And what I did in my book and my theory, the theory of superrelativity, was to break up or deconstruct electromagnetism. So there's the electron, electro, electrostatic field, the magnetic field, and the gravitational field. So these three fields are the aspects of the single fundamental field. So what he was trying to do and what I did was basically say these were three different types of bending of space. And we had to figure out how to create these three types of bending of space, the aspects of the single fundamental field. So that's all, that's all that he was trying to do, and that's all that I did. I just followed his path to its natural conclusion. But there are some concepts within that definition that are not necessarily easy to get your brain around, and one of them is space itself. When you say the bending of space, what is it that's being bent? Exactly. Well, that's what Maxwell said. That's what a lot of people said over the centuries. And... Uh, Space, really, the ether and space is the same thing in, in my theory and in, in their theories. So the space, uh, as they saw it, or the ether, was, a, was defined as a quasi-elastic solid, or some people also say a quasi-rigid solid. So what's that? Well, quasi means that whatever this thing is, when you bend it with a force like magnetism or an electrostatic field or a gravitational field, when you remove that field, it snaps back into place as a Euclidean flat geometry. So you have to start thinking in a geometric way now. 
So that's that's what it. And so quasi elastic means this thing can be deformed. It can be bent a little bit. And then uh, the solid part. That's the most confusing part to people. When I say solid, when you look up the word solid, the definition of it, it means this, that which is continuous. That's it. Don't think of it as like iron or wood or steel. Uh, Whatever that thing is out there, that thing called space, it's a continuous thing. There are no parts. It doesn't break apart. There isn't nothing. It's not a, a particle field or anything like It's a continuous object that can be stretched and deformed. So that's what the three fields are, and that's the approach I took to discover how to, how those fields interact with each other, and actually the whole system becomes quite sensible and, and simple once I uh, had laid it out in the book. Well, let's let's envision space now as a grid, or and let's take one line of that grid, and it you know it extends as a straight line. Are we? To understand here that the 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 force of whether it's is it does it have to be gravity and magnetism or is it gravity or magnetism? Um, is it a, is it a combination? And when that force is applied, that straight line would then bend would be would be affected by that force in some fashion. But when that force is removed, it would go back to being a straight line. Yeah, there is different types of deformation. So now. I've defined force as deformations of space. So uh, there are stresses and tensions within this ether or within space, the same thing. Uh, so let's just say we start out with the first force, which is the primary force of the entire universe. In the universe, there only exists one single thing, space, the ether. So now we can deform it to make the forces the primary force is the electrostatic field, which is a twist of space. It's a vortex. And they worked that out many years ago, but they weren't able to figure out the math because they really needed torsion field theory to complete it. But what it is is when you have an electrostatic field, which is an inversion of space, a twist of space, it forms a geometry that creates a, uh, it's a stretching as it twists around. If you can imagine in your mind uh, have playing with silly putty and you put it on, on top of a, a, a picture, comic strip picture or whatever, mm-hmm. you look at the picture and then you twist the silly putty, look what happens to the picture. It stretches. Right. And that's the key to creating the necessary motion for particles. So that was part of unifying the forces. I had to f- figure out a way for particles to be uh, have autonomous motion. And so when you do this twist and you, you realize that from the beginning to the twist to the end of the twist, space stretches more and more. It becomes less and less dense. That forms a pressure wave within the particle. So each particle, all particles are made of electrostatic fields charges, like the electron. It's a negative charge. Mm-hmm. So that has a rotation, whether, you know, I'm not sure if it's clockwise or counterclockwise, probably counterclockwise. But that rotation causes the pressure gradient field, and when that happens, 
space bulges at the far end of the particle, and it, force, it causes uh, a push of space. So now we have particles in motion uh, due to this structure. And the next field, the bending that you want to talk about next, is the magnetic field. Whenever an electrostatic charge moves, space reacts to that. Since that thing is kind of spinning as it's moving through space, it's a twist, a vortex shape, the space around that particle and within that particle reacts in a torsional fashion. It rotates around the particle. That rotation of the moving charge is the magnetic field. Now we're two-thirds of the way there. We have two forces that are fields in space, ge geometric shapes of space, that are the forces, the, the electrostatic force and magnetic force. And Faraday came up with the discovery of, you know, the laws of induction. He discovered that whenever a charge moves, a magnetic field is created. And when you move a magnetic field close to a, a conductor, the charges are forced to move. A voltage develops and charges move. So there's a connection there, and the connection is motion. Remember that. Okay. So now all we have left is the final deformation of space. So we've already dealt with the twisting of space. So you can imagine how the space would look if it's twisted, and you can imagine how it looks when that twisted thing goes through space or within it because it's made up of it. It's consubstantial with it. Uh, it rotates. So now we're two-thirds of the way there. Now we got to do gravity. Well, what's a gravity force? It's a contraction of space. That's the final field, the final aspect that we needed to discover. And whenever a electromagnetic particle moves in a very special way, um, that special way is in an accelerated manner. Whenever an unbalanced fundamental charge moves in an accelerated manner, it generates a contraction of space. That's the final possible way that space can move other than an expansion of space, which would be an anti-gravity field. So we have the contraction of space. So accelerated motion, there's two types. We have the type... Basically, when you put your foot on the gas pedal uh, and you accelerate, that's a linear type straight line motion, but you're changing speed as you go. You're increasing speed. The accelerated motion I'm talking about is a uniform circular motion. That's also acceleration. And that's what we have with unbalanced charges. They move in arcs and they have angular momentum. And when they move in this way, a contraction of space occurs in and around those particles. And when you have that, that's what is, generates the mass of the particle. It's really <laughs> a fairly simple uh, thing, but it's been denied by physicists in this time because they've abandoned that kind of thinking uh, due to quantum mechanics. Are they still denying it? Because it seems like this is becoming more accepted. Well, I'm working with a physicist now, and he's has an open, he's a gravity researcher in California, works at one of the major universities there, and he has an open mind. But you know, in the same place that we were all talking, which was a uh, 
anti-gravity uh, research forum uh, lecture series, um, there was another physicist there that got spitting mad that I was even saying these things. <laughs> yes, yeah, so there's a lot of physicists that do not like the classical approach. They're taught not to think that way. And that's why they couldn't solve the problem, because they were using the wrong model. In order to solve the unified field theory model, you have to use the right model. And Einstein had that idea, the right model. Uh, and it's never been about... You see, the quantum mechanics is a is all about a particle-to-particle interaction, and they define that as force, whereas in relativity and in my theory, super-relativity, it's all about a particle-to-space interaction. The motion of particles through space causes them to bend, and those are the forces. So, yeah, they're, they're in denial about... Uh, this this whole method because they they use probabilities and uh, in mathematics that is based in probabilities and you really can't uh, use that type of mathematics to explain how things really work. It's actually missing the mechanics part. They shouldn't call quantum mechanics quantum mechanics. They should call it quantum probabilities. It's a more accurate description of what's happening there. And there are a lot of physicists, I don't say a lot, but there's a Perimeter Institute, uh, there are people over there, Lee Molin, and others that work with him who are working more the way I'm working. And I haven't contacted them yet because I'm, I'm writing a research paper. But eventually I am going to contact them as well once I run this by the uh, physicists that I'm working with right now. So one more question to just try to understand, again, everything that you've just said and how you've described and explained this. But if you bend space, are you bending distance as well? And maybe that's a naive way to put it. Yes. Oh, excellent question. I am so glad you brought that one up. That's the whole point of this thing. Um, Let me just say it this way. You see, I got the idea about the, the... Bending the distance, changing the distance, which is you know basically changing the metric of space. Right, and this comes from uh, Einstein's greatest uh, or happiest thought from Amir D. Excel's book. So follow this, and you'll get the idea that how space, the distance, actually physically changes. Einstein followed the line of reasoning that began with the happiest thought of his life. Still at the Swiss Patent Office he conducted one of his famous thought experiments. Einstein imagined a circle spinning in space. The center of the circle did not move, but its circumference was moving quickly in a circular direction. Einstein compared what happens in several reference frames, a standard tool he had used in developing special relativity. He concluded, using his special relativity, that the boundary of the disk contracted as it spun. There's where you're changing the distance of space in that area where the acceleration is. Remember, mm-hmm. I said circular motion yep. is accelerated motion. There was a force acting on the circle at the boundary, the centrifugal force, and its action was analogous to that of the gravitational force. But that same contraction that affected the outer circle left the diameter unchanged. Thus, Einstein concluded in a way that surprised even him 
the ratio of the circle to the diameter was no longer pi. He deduced that in the presence of a gravitational force or field, the geometry of space was non-Euclidean. means it's curved. And specifically, the thing that we're looking for in your question is action is a contraction. And when you contract space, it becomes denser. And so, like, if you had a ruler out in outer space and you had an intense uh, gravitational field and you... So one side of the ruler was A and the other side B, and, and you, you made a measurement there. That thing is rigid, but the space between those two points, A and B, is increased because of the gravitational field. There's actually more stuff there. The metric increases. The density increases. So, yes, that's a very important point, and it's backed up. Many ways that I could explain, basically, light goes slower in a gravitational field. Why? Because there's more distance to travel in a given region because it's contracted or it's denser. So the light really isn't slowing down. There's more stuff there to travel through. And when that happens, the permittivity and permeability of space increase, which matches the fact that the speed of light will be slowing down. So you're, you're... your question is very good. It's very important. Yes, space does the metric of space, the distance changes. So as we start to understand this, and as you, you know, continue to explain it to us, obviously some practical applications start to come to mind. But in your work and your research, what are the practical applications that you see as we get to understand this? And maybe we even get to a point where we can manipulate or employ these ideas. What types of things can we accomplish? Well, what I'm really heading for and what I'm motivated to do is bring anti-gravity technology into this world. So in order to understand anti-gravity, you first have to understand gravity. So my focus of my research was figuring out what gravity really was, defining it properly, understanding it, and then realizing how to move toward a very important technology, which is anti-gravity technology. If gravity is a contraction of space, then anti-gravity must be what? An expansion? Of course. And so the trick is, how do you do that? Now, if you remember from what we said earlier, um, the electrostatic field is a field that is a twist of space, and it stretches. That's an expansion of space. And there has been work by people like Thomas Townsend Brown who used what they call electrogravitics, uh, where he created lift with just electrostatic fields in, in charging capacitors and such. So there is some basis, there's some thrust that was detected using that, and they called it anti-gravity, but I think it's more of a thrust. Uh, but magnetics is also a rotation of space, and so a magnetic field also stretches space. So now we can have a real-world technology that can be used uh, using high magnetics. As we have noticed, when, uh, as many people have noticed, that UFOs always seem to have these really strong magnetic fields around them. Uh, that's no accident. And I, I got very suspicious early on when I was a teenager in reading those books. And I read one book, and the, uh, uh, the people 
who, the U.S. Air Force, who went to examine a um, landing site, picked up some of the grass to the landing site, and they had a magnometer there, and, and they were able to detect that that grass was magnetized. That takes hundreds of Teslas to do that. Uh, there's also been physicists who've analyzed photographs in which the emulsion, uh, these are older photographs when they were still using film and such, mm-hmm. uh, the emulsion of the film was magnetized. And another physicist noticed while looking through Polaroid lenses at the UFO that there was bands of polarized light around it. takes enormous amounts of magnetic energy to do that. So there is... There is um, circumstantial evidence, uh, testimonial evidence, that has linked magnetism to anti-gravity. Now, in my book, I describe why magnetism can be used to create an anti-gravity field by pulling space apart. Now, we're talking about your earlier question, the density of space, the distance of space. We're reversing it now by pulling it apart and stretching it. And when you do that, you change all kinds of things to the benefit of the person who does this, the master of reality, let's say. So the technology that we we need, this world needs to evolve as anti-gravity technology. Because not only do you get uh, floating little uh, cars, supercars I call them, hovercrafts, that can go at enormous speeds, they can break the light speed barrier as well. And there's a technical discussion we need to have there if you're interested in describing how exactly we can break the light speed barrier using a gradient magnetic field. Yeah, I think we need to talk about that. I want to kind of go through this checklist of things that relate to this concept uh, that as we, again, master it, understand it, employ it, we can change the way we fundamentally perceive and live, perceive yeah, everything exactly and live. Right. So let's talk about the speed of light and, and what, you, what you're describing there as a way to actually uh, break that barrier. Yes. All right. So now we have to go back in history. In, in my life, in my research, the whole life I did this, I, I literally went back to the future to get things going here. And so we go all the way back now to James Clerk Maxwell, who made a great discovery, one of the most important equations that exists today, maybe even more important than E equals MC squared. Uh, he discovered that the speed of light is defined by C equals 1 over the square root of permittivity times permeability. Those are two properties of space. If space wasn't a real thing, those properties wouldn't exist. Right. As many scientists still want to argue that space is a void, made of nothing, blah, blah, blah. It's nonsense. It has to be made of something because it has measurable properties. And if they have been measured. It's been confirmed. So stop saying space is made of nothing. So now we have a link, a link that defines one of the constants that's not really constant, that's another story to get into, of space. You can see it's really a function of permittivity and permeability. If you change those, then you change the speed of light. And if you can change the speed of light, slow it down, you can speed it up. So all you have to do is reduce the amount of permittivity and permeability in space. 
And by using a magnetic field, a strong one, you can drop those. And there have been scientists, material scientists, I've read about their research on ResearchGate, who've made a material called a metamaterial. And so strangely, uh, it seems that, that there have been reports that uh, UFOs, the outer shell, is made of a metamaterial. It makes sense, and I'll tell you why. The metamaterials that they do, they can create or or control the amount of permittivity and permeability. So they design the metamaterials uh, to have zero permeability and permeability and permittivity. And when they shine light into this material, they claim that it goes infinitely fast. So now we have a mechanism that we can use to break the light speed barrier. All we have to do is get control of permittivity and permeability. And apparently this can be done using a magnetic field. Uh, And so... By stretching space, you reduce permeability and perm and permittivity. Those two words are really hard to say. <laughs> <laughs> but when you do that, you now you have a spatial bias drive, which I call the slipwave spatial bias drive. And um, the more you reduce these two, the faster you can go. And I'm not talking just going, you know, like in Star Trek, eight or nine times the speed of light. I'm talking about 50,000 times, 100,000, a million times. Because you have to go at least 50,000 times faster than the speed of light just to get to the stars near us right. in a reasonable amount of time. Right. The speed of light just isn't fast enough. Uh, if we just could only go that fast, we'd be pretty much held down to this planet and the solar system and maybe a couple of the nearest stars. It would take... 4.2 years one way just to get to Proxima Centauri. So that's not tolerable. We have to get there in 15 minutes, or 20 minutes. And the only way to do that is go 50, 60, 70,000 times the speed of light. With this technology I propose using high magnetics, we can achieve those kinds of speeds and also have benefits that protect one, because if we didn't use the slipwave spatial bias drive, uh, it would be fatal to try to use rockets or any other type of propulsion to get us up to light speed, because the Lorenz transformations would affect the, the person in the spaceship and the spaceship. It would contract. Remember we talked about contraction earlier. Mm-hmm. As you accelerate toward the speed of light, that ship will contract. Time will come to a halt and your inertial mass will increase to infinity. This makes moving at the speed of light impractical if you don't bias the space around the spaceship, all around it. You have to change the density of it. You have to diminish it. So, like, you're almost moving through nothing, just very close to it, with a high uh, space that has high tension and low density. And you move, and it's like it's like removing the distance between any two uh, places you're going to, because the space within your slipwave spatial bias field is reduced to almost nothing. It's stretched to the point where it's almost nothing there. The permittivity and permeability drop. You have a pressure wave you're traveling behind, 
and you can move at any speed you want. This is very necessary for our civilization to evolve. Like you say, you know, when we do this, we're going to be able to go to other stars, all the stars in our galaxy, even other galaxies, and we're going to meet people. We're going to meet. We're we're going to finally know, without the government covering it up, that there are extraterrestrials, and you know, we're going to learn about their cultures. We're going to learn more about God, how the universe works. You know, all kinds of great things. It'll it'll be a great benefit to man, and most importantly, we'll be able to colonize another world or world, so just in case something really bad happens here, we'll be able to be safe. Our species will be able to be safe somewhere else on another planet. So you've referenced UFO, UFOs a couple of times in the discussion already. Um, are you suggesting that this technology that you're describing here and outlining is already being employed by visitors from other galaxies yeah. or, universe or, or uh, star systems? Yes, I think it's the primary technology. Now, you have to realize these guys are not just a few hundred years ahead of us or even a few thousand. More than likely, they're millions of years more evolved than us. So they've discovered unified field theory eons ago. They've refined it. They probably are, no, I'm sure, they already know about the Stargate technology uh and which is another way to travel through great distances instantaneously. And I'm sure some of those people use the Stargate technology or interdimensional travel as well. And the way you know that they're an interdimensional traveling ship is you'll see a green mist emerge just before the ship appears. Uh, that seems to be a byproduct of an interdimensional uh, portal opening. Um, and we first discovered it in the Philadelphia experiment, but uh, I believe that the United States also has Stargate technology, which is the other way to travel to other times and dimensions and other areas within the galaxy and beyond. Well, that was going to be my follow-up question to that. If, if, alien, if that is indeed alien technology or technology that aliens employ, uh, there has been discussion that uh, whether it's the United States government or other world governments uh, have, in fact, been exchanging technology or at least receiving some technology from these alien visitors. Is it possible that some of this technology is already in our hands? Yes. Uh, pretty sure it is already. Uh, there have been airline pilots that have been flying over Area 51 who were instructed by the uh, radar facility to make turns and not to fly uh, directly or too close over the Area 51. As they were turning, uh, this, these two pilots uh, recollected in the interview I saw, as they were turning, they knew where Area 51 was, and as they were making their left turn, they looked out that way, and they saw 12 lighted, brightly lighted objects come straight down, not across the field, straight down from outer space, Stop just over the field and then do a little zip and land on the on the uh, the runway. Mm. So they've seen them. I, I know of a person who has seen an up close uh, 
UFO that turned out to be a uh, Air Force experimental craft, and they've sworn testimony to me. They are not people that will ever come forward. There's two of them, and they they're afraid, and so they're very credible. So I know I'm convinced for sure that we have this technology, and at some point. They may come forward. You know, there is some signs that the U.S. Navy and the Tic Tacs and all that, they released information that they've never released before. It was kind of forced upon them by somebody who seemed to have grabbed the the, uh, the radars and stuff and also the videos coming from the jets and, you know, released them on some website. But then they then did not deny that that was real. And so there's some indication that maybe the United States may at some point admit that they have this technology, but it's so valuable. This this technology is so important. It's above top secret. Right. It's, it's America's greatest secret. And, and why is that? And it's just a very simple, sensible reason why it's so secret. It gives us a strategic military advantage. Cut and dry, that's that's what it's all about. Well, it seems to be a supreme strategic yes. military advantage, like yes. the ultimate strategic <laughs> military advantage. They can quite literally fly circles around our fastest jets and rockets, uh, and they have done that. I mean, it's like laughable. <laughs> if they wanted to shoot us down, you know, and they'd use a laser, and they would just cut us to ribbons. There was just... <laughs> it, so if if, if the U.S. government has some of this technology, then there must be two scientific communities, the one that's in the know and the right. one that's outside of that circle trying to achieve some of these things on their own. Is there no intersection of those two groups? Very little. And, and the people in the know, those people are, they have done a great job under great threat to, to keep them quiet. Uh, it's they can get in a lot of trouble if they speak out. And, you know, America has many ways. The government has many ways of punishing those uh, people that, that uh, would leak such information. It's it's the highest. You know, some people on their deathbeds have, uh, you know, revealed that we do have aliens and alien contact, and I've right. read their stories. Right. And in, do you believe them? You know, they're not here anymore. We can't question them anymore. But they swore on their deathbed, you know, they saw this, they saw that, we have this, we have that. And I guess right now that's all we're going to get. Uh, every once in a while, uh, a general claims we have bases on Mars and, and so forth. But the mainstream media doesn't really seem to pick it up and dig at it any. Uh, probably they're told not to. But, you know, at some point, Someone is going to have to, and someone in authority is going to have to come forward and and make this uh, knowable. Uh, my thrust is really to say, okay, maybe you're not ever going to say this until somebody in the the mainstream, uh, some government, you know, I don't know who in Europe or wherever, says we've done experiments, and these experiments have to do with magnetism. They're in my book. I'm saying do these experiments, prove that anti-gravity exists, 
write it up and put it into the mainstream, you know, research groups to verify. This is the way it's going to happen because I don't think the government anytime soon is going to admit to this. So we have to get the physicists on the other side. Hey, stop smashing particles together. Take a break from that. And let's do some real science that has some tremendous real-world benefit. Uh, If we get anti-gravity, we'll have so many great machines that can do so many things, save lives, protect the Earth from asteroids, put up Project Sunshade, um, super ambulances that can fly across the country in a matter of a few minutes, pick somebody up and bring them to a specialist hospital where they can get treated immediately. There's so many applications and ideas I can think of that will make this world a much better world. And somebody's going to have to push for it, and I guess that guy is going to be me. So give me an understanding of how much force we're talking about here. When we go back to the anti-gravity discussion and we talk about uh, magnetism being the force by which we can achieve this, you know, we all understand basic magnetic forces. How many times greater than those forces are we talking about to be able to achieve this kind of effect? Well, I suspect, and I haven't done the math in this area yet, but I suspect it's going to be several hundred Teslas, which is a, a great amount of, you know, powerful amount of magnetism. You know, people like me have to stay away from that kind of magnetism. You know, if you have any metal in you or anything like that, yeah, uh, it could be catastrophic. <laughs> uh, but fortunately, magnetism can be shielded. And that's the beauty. This whole thing seems to work. It almost seems to me to be a, a divine creation because mag- the magnetism needs to be shielded if you're going to build a starship. Otherwise, you're going to really make the people inside the spaceship sh- sick. But you can get the anti-gravity benefit from the magnetism, even though the magnetism is shielded, because the anti-gravity can't be shielded, just like gravity can't be shielded. So... Getting back to your, your question about how much force, well, it's, it's a great amount of force. It's probably going to take oh, megawatts of power. So now we have a question of where are we going to get that power from. Right. Well, the aliens have somehow managed to figure that out. And I, I don't really think it's matter antimatter or something like that, and not a fuel-based thing. It's probably some sort of a perpetual motion device that generates uh, the power. Uh, I, I'm working on some ideas myself, but I'm not really great at, you know, doing uh, mechanical experiments. You know, I don't have enough money to, <laughs> to <laughs> do some of the experiments that I really want to do. Uh, but I, I'm trying anyway just to detect the effect. And so we, we really need, you know, at least kilowatts many kilowatts of energy flowing in a superconductor, you know, a superconducting magnet and doing it. And probably that magnet has to be rotating in some way because there seems to be a motion aspect that enhances the anti-gravity effect of the magnetic field. So I'm thinking really the experiment needs to be done as a rotating magnetic field experiment and then weighing above 
that rotating magnetic field, and it should become lighter and lighter the faster and stronger the magnetic field is. We've talked about achieving far faster than the speed of light uh, travel to be able to cover great distances, but what about uh, things like time travel? Is that something that comes into play when we start talking about these ideas? Uh, You don't really time travel with the slip wave system because uh, actually time will go a little faster. Okay. in those devices where normally time would come to a grinding halt at those speeds. But since you're really affecting the structure of space, it it negates that, you know, um, time dilation problem uh, and reverses it, which is handy again, because if time stopped in all your molecules, it's not really time that stops, it's all the molecules and particles in your body that are grinding to a halt as they're being thrusted in that one direction, mm-hmm. flattened, if you, if you could imagine that. Uh, but that doesn't happen in a slipway field. You remain normal. So you're floating. You may be going uh, 50,000 times the speed of light, but in that spaceship, you're weightless. There's no inertia. So time travel can be achieved with the Stargate system. And this is my most highly speculative chapter. And I, I got some tips from somebody who's in the know, who has connections uh, basically with uh, the other world. And um, the, not the other world, I would say the spiritual realm. And I got some keywords. And so I decided, okay, I'll write this chapter since I was asked to do it. And it was on the Stargate technology and I only knew so much, and I only knew the, about the Philadelphia experiment and then the Montauk experiment. And uh, there is some linking there. And they used high magnetics to, and they accidentally discovered a, a dimension portal and supposedly traveled back in time 10 minutes or something of that nature. Mm-hmm. So that was their introduction into this technology. They've refined it. I did some searches uh, for something called um, a fractal lens, which I didn't know what that was. And when I did it, I actually found that there's a, such a thing existed, and it was made of a metamaterial. Well, now things are getting interesting. And at the very ch- beginning of the chapter, as I was writing it, I said, if stargates can be built, I know one thing for sure has to happen. Something is going to have to move faster than the speed of light in order for this to work, in order for us to go. Uh, you have to make space vibrate at incredibly high frequencies. And this is like tuning the space in, the star, uh, in where the Stargate frame is uh, and then using maybe sound at high frequency. The combination of the two, the electromagnetic vibration is the photons come out of the... Um, Stargate frame, they hit the the air and the atmosphere, and they cause a shock wave, an electromagnetic magnetic shock wave, because their frequency is so high. This causes a portal open. It's like tuning space, like you were using a radio to tune for a frequency. You do the same thing with that technique, and what happens is you just open a portal that coincides with the frequencies you're using, and it could be either a time dimension or a um, different spatial region. 
and you just walk through it, and then you're there, and, uh, and you don't come back unless you open that portal again. And um, there's been many cases in history where people have just vanished uh, going through what what had to have been a, you know, some sort of a magnetic storm in the area. There was a magnetic right. resonant field, and they just happened to walk at the spot where it was concentrated, and they're gone. And I talk about the one famous story in my book uh, where eyewitnesses saw the guy in the field waving and then vanish right in front of their eyes. And they ran out to where he was, and they could hear somebody calling, but they couldn't find him. And they looked, and they walked around, and for days he could hear this poor guy calling out there, but he couldn't get back. And there was just a worn spot in the grass where he, this person was walking in this other dimension, parallel dimension probably, but couldn't get back through the portal. So, yeah, I, I believe that the Stargate technology is possible and probable, and, and as we probably have that as well. Uh, what concerns me most about it is going back in time. Uh, I think that's morally, ethically <laughs> wrong. Uh, we should leave the past alone. Don't try to alter it. Don't, I, I, I just believe it's a really bad thing to do. I have, I have trouble understanding how, even if I, I, the time travel idea starts to not connect with me because in order for us to travel to the past there has to be something recording the past it has okay right i I mean i I can fix your problem okay please do (laughs) in order for time travel to work one thing must be true all time is occurring at the same moment right it doesn't work it can't be possible without that that's true that's right so how do we know that that has happened or is that is possible? People from NDEs go to the other say and they other side and they say time doesn't exist. All time is in an, an eternal moment. So they're confirming in the bigger reality, the superverse, uh, that that is the case. Time here really isn't real. We we're born into a time segment where everything is linear and you know sensible. You know, things make sense, this happens this time, and a little later this thing happens then, and, you know, we can process that with our brain, right? and it all makes sense. But in the bigger reality, if time travel is possible, there's only one way that that can work, is that all time is occurring at the same moment eternally. And that it does appear to be the case according to NDE people. See. Some of these things, in order to solve these things, you've got to go to the source, the creator, and ask that person, you know, how this thing works. This is what I used to do at IBM. You know, if I had a problem, there was a problem on the line, I went to the person who created the device, the machine, whatever it was, and I would ask them, how does this work? Explain it to me. And, and that cleared up the problem. And it's the same thing here. Scientists have to be open to the idea that there is a spiritual realm, there is a God, there is a creator, and um, the creator wants to let us know and has let us know that he created, and I say he, but it's a supreme being more than just a he, and I I could tell you a case. Father Rick Wendell, uh, who's on my website, on my blog, 
he had a near-death experience, and God lays it out clearly to him as uh, other people he has also done it to, like Howard Storm. He says this, all of this three-dimensional world is within God. There is nothing outside of God. Everything within this physical universe has to correspond to laws, and God set those laws. They are immutable as God is immutable. It's, that's the way it really is. And, you know, our world, our society, we're still pretty primitive thinkers, and a lot of people have a hard time going beyond their senses, what they can see and hear and feel. If I can't see it, hear it, feel it, and detect it, it doesn't exist. Right. That's not the right paradigm to be in. That's not the right thought process. We have to expand our consciousness now, and um, that's just, you know, that's my opinion, but it's not just an opinion. Well, let's, I call it knowledge. Let's talk about that a little bit for, you know, a, the better part of what, you know, what we we would say in the 20th century, science has seemed to uh, have become at odds with the existence of God and with the existence of an afterlife, all of those ideas. They seem to have... Mm-hmm separated and almost um, uh, in a way that they couldn't reconcile. But I'm starting to see a reconciliation. Are you seeing the same thing? Yes. Uh, um, Eventually what's going to happen is the same thing has happened on, I'm sure, all these other extraterrestrial planets, alien planets who are more evolved. As we have evolved here, we're seeing uh, a sudden, just a large amount of people with psychic abilities. Mm Mm-hmm and connections, and they're getting access to the other side. They're getting information, incredibly good information. And uh, we're so we're evolving, you know. God is actively uh, a part of all of this. And through all these NDEs, when these people have these NDEs, then they, they come back most often, they come back with additional gifts of psychic abilities of one sort or another. That's right, yes. So we we got a situation where we're evolving now. We're going to come to realize at one point it's going to just sweep across the world that, of course, there's a God. How did we ever not know this? (laughs) Uh, The idea of of, uh, atheism and all this stuff, it's not that, you know, I hate them or it's nothing to do with personality or and we shouldn't think that way. They're not, you know, bad people. They're just not aware. They're not consciously to the right level, even though they're highly educated. And there's a lot of atheist physicists, but there also is a lot of physicists that have religion. So right. it's it's a matter of education, and it's a matter of increasing the awareness. They're just going to have to be able to accept that this testimonial evidence coming from these people is valid. Uh, NDEs have done some incredible uh, things proving that consciousness exists beyond death. That means we don't die. We are eternal. The afterlife is really the place we all come from, and we're all going to go to. So death is really the real big teacher Anybody who has any doubts, and I, I could tell you one person, Howard Storm, who was an atheist, who died. He's no longer an atheist. And this is happening time and time again. Atheists get converted quicker than anybody, 
after a near-death experience because what they see, what they experience directly, they know is real. It's true. So it's just a matter of time. And when, when we get to other planets and we get to talk to other beings, they will tell us, and they have told us, God is a universal being. It's not just his center of attention just isn't here on Earth. We are not the center of the universe, the center of the solar system, the center of anything, but we are the center of God's attention. All beings everywhere are at the center of God's attention. So this is the things that we need to learn so that we can evolve. Have you had an NDE of your own, Mark? I have not had NDEs, but I have had psychic experiences that helped convince me there was an afterlife. And in one case, my life was actually saved by one of these experiences that proved to me that beyond any shadow of a doubt, we have guardian angels and um, or spirit guides. It's the same thing. Right. Um, that really exist, and they're helping everybody, not just me. This is everybody thing. Eight billion people on this planet... We have 8 billion people with two or more guardian angels with them from the time they're born until they die. That's just the way it is, whether you believe it or not. But they're there helping out. So it's important for science to to understand this. They can advance more if they open their consciousness and their minds to this stuff, and they will get inspiration uh, they will get more help from the other side once they believe. And I've literally prayed and had my prayers answered by my guides, providing more evidence for me. Right. So, yeah, I haven't had a near death, but I've, I know uh, several people that I have. I've talked to them at great length. I've watched many videos and, and read many books on the subject. I'm very well aware of the phenomena and what's happening. It's it's, it's happening to over 200,000 people in America alone every year. We um, are at the point where we're almost out of time here, Mark, and uh, you've laid so much out on the table for us to consider. I'm assuming that almost all of what we've talked about tonight is in your book. Yeah. Uh, I do have some information on NDE, these, the signature of God discovery was comes came about in part from uh, an NDE experience, something I was searching for, and I knew an NDE person would have. So yeah, I have NDE in there. Uh, talk about aliens. Talk about stargates. Talk about speed of light. All that stuff we talked about is pretty much in the book. Other than my personal experiences which is going to be in the next book I write. Okay, so this book is called Master of Reality, and where can people find it? It's on Amazon. It's also on my website. Uh, you can get a signed copy if you like. It's at www.super-relativity.com. And there's links right at the first, the front page with some buttons. You can go either to Amazon or go to the page where you can order a signed copy. I don't want to get ahead of ourselves here, but you said you're working on the next book. Any idea when that might be available? Because that would be a great point for us to bring you back. Yeah. Um, oh, gosh. I have two papers to write, and <laughs> I'm slow. It took me four years to write this book, so it's, 
it won't take me as long because I don't have to do uh, as much research. But I just came up with the idea today. It actually will be like what you would call a prequel. Uh, it's basically going to talk about all those spiritual and psychic experiences, experiences with mediums. I have had a lot of stuff happen in that area, so I have a, a connection, you know, a, a right. life path connection with all that. And it would help to explain some of the things, a lot of the things that I have in my book. There's, it's a story that's even more amazing than than this book is here, the Unified Field Theory book, which is a pretty amazing thing uh, once it gets realized and discovered. But, uh, yeah, that, I can't really say. Uh, yeah, that's I, I, it's, it's, it's a tough thing to project and predict, but um, we appreciate you coming on tonight, and uh, we'll stay in touch so we know when uh, you get closer to having that work realized, and we'll get you back on. Okay. Sounds good. Thanks so much for your time, Mark. Again, the website is super-relativity.com. Beyond Reality Paranormal is hosted by J.V. Johnson and produced by Orion Palmer and Slick Eddie Edwards. Like us on Facebook and subscribe to our YouTube channel. Please consider supporting the program either through your podcast platform, click on the link in the description, or on Patreon at Joha Productions. If you'd like to be a guest on Beyond Reality Paranormal or you have a recommendation for a guest, contact our producer, Slick Eddie Edwards. Eddie is spelled with a Y at slickeddieedwards at gmail.com.